Hey everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Thrilogy Podcast. My name is Cameron, and I am here with my two co-hosts, Krista and Morgan. And we are so excited to be kicking off this podcast, and we thank you all for checking us out. We will be here every Monday with a new story involving true crime, conspiracies, or deep dives. And so with all that said, let's dive into today's story. Our first story begins with the case of Eva Blanco, a famous murder mystery that takes place in 1997 in Algete, Madrid, Madrid, Spain. On April 19th, 1997, Eva spent her afternoon like most teens did, spending time with friends. They had kicked off the afternoon by playing tennis, and as the day went on, they ended up day drinking in a park and then eventually moving to a local bar, kind of like a nightclub, until around 11.30 p.m. Now, Ava's parents knew that she was out with friends, and Ava had promised her mom that she would return home by midnight. Ava had always gotten home by curfew, so when she didn't arrive, her mom became instantly worried. Shortly after midnight, when Ava still hadn't returned home, her mom decided to follow up with Ava's friends to see you know, if she was running late, they were maybe still together, but there was already this nervous or even anxious feeling in the air, knowing that this was very unlike her daughter. After getting in touch with her friends, Ava's mom confirmed that one of the friends had last seen Ava at 11.45 p.m. when they had separated at a vacant lot less than half a mile from Ava's parents' house. Now, Ava had intended to cut through the vacant lot, as she and her friends had done countless times before. This vacant lot, it was kind of like a little bit of a shortcut, and it would save some time versus walking through town. But unfortunately, this would be the last time that Ava was seen alive. As the night continued on, Ava's parents knew that something wasn't right, and her father, her cousin, a local police officer, and one of the fathers of Ava's friends had set out to look for any sign of her. By 1 a.m., with still no trace of their daughter, Ava's parents decided to go to the local police station and report her missing. However, to their shock, police didn't take this disappearance seriously and figured she was probably just passed out in a doorway somewhere, you know, after her night out. And, you know, realistically speaking, only an hour had passed. Now, after insisting that this wasn't like their daughter and that Ava had never broken curfew, local police started searching the area by 2.30 a.m. But even with the search, Ava Blanco wasn't officially reported missing until 8 a.m. And by noon the following morning, Ava's parents had actually asked for the public's help on the popular Telemadrid uh, news channel because they hadn't heard from her and they hadn't seen any sign of her. Ava's parents were desperate looking for their daughter, and they felt like the local police weren't giving them the attention that they needed for for Ava's disappearance. And it's really what ultimately led them to broadcast her disappearance on the news. Can you guys guess how many times Ava's father went to the local police station that morning? 15 times, 15 different times begging the police for their help, insisting that this was not normal behavior for Ava. Her parents would criticize the fact that police only searched by foot and didn't even do any in-vehicle searching until after sunrise. This ultimately meant that any rural roads that weren't in town were completely ignored until hours later. Police later negated these criticisms and commented that this was standard procedure in missing persons cases. And honestly, we see this so often in a lot of, you know, U.S. uh, missing persons cases. I don't know. What do you guys think? Uh, no, definitely we do see this a lot in the U.S. It makes me question what the written standard procedure is because right. when you have adults like parents or spouses, you kind of get the answer like, you know, they chose to walk out, they abandoned their family. That's like 
the police first guess because they may not want to head out there right away. And then when you have teens, unfortunately, it's, you know, okay, they ran away, you know, they're angsty, just give them 48 hours when in reality, that's like the most crucial time. Right. Absolutely. And that's exactly what police said in the beginning, too. Right. When her when her parents went, you know, they assumed the worst. They assumed that she was laying in a doorway, you know, drunk after her night out. So, yeah, no, totally. Well, I feel like another layer to this, as you guys were saying, like you hear so often about these crimes that aren't considered missing persons and they're not taken seriously when they should be. And it's actually really dangerous because at least in the U.S., it's a total myth that you need to wait 24 hours until someone's considered a missing person. And I actually heard that the first 72 hours someone is missing are actually really important because, of course, that person could be in danger or be move somewhere and then you have way less of a chance of finding them. So it just adds to making the situation so much more dangerous and complicated. Yeah, totally. And it's like that show, right? 48 hours, like that whole show is focused on the fact that the first 48 hours are the most important. So yeah, no, totally. And also to add to kind of what Morgan was saying, like they could be far within that, like given to her age range and, you know, she's a young girl, a young, attractive girl, you know, if she was kidnapped, that person could be, out of the border in the first 24 hours. So definitely, especially Spain is so small, you know, and then the next country would have to get involved. It was definitely a odd choice to wait that this duration that they waited. Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of times too, we take it for granted that today in today's day and age, right? We have cell phones, we have different ways of tracking people's location, but like this was 1997, you know, if she's gone for a couple hours, that really could be the difference of exactly what you said, you know, being in Spain or being in Portugal or being in France or being taken to Morocco or, you know, who knows? So yeah, totally. While her parents were pleading to the public for help locating their missing daughter, they were completely unaware that by 9 a.m., Ava's lifeless body had already been discovered some three, almost four miles away by two elderly residents. Initially, the couple that discovered Ava's body thought that she had been run over as she was found on the side of the road next to a construction site. But once the police arrived, they quickly realized that this was something much more sinister. Ava had been stabbed several times in the back, likely as she attempted to run from her attacker, possibly escaping the car that she had been likely uh, been kidnapped with. Now, I mentioned a car and I know I haven't talked about a car yet, but this is because it would have been an incredibly odd place for Ava to have ended up by on foot. And there were actually some slight tire marks, but it was hard to confirm if they were from that night or from a different time. Now, unfortunately for police, the early morning was incredibly rainy and that rain had destroyed all vehicle tire marks and most other forensic evidence. The only clue that survived the rain were Ava's footprints and those of her attacker, size 9 shoe prints. By 3.30 p.m., the police had confirmed Ava's identity and had informed her parents. As you can imagine, her parents were absolutely devastated, but this seemingly random murder had the entire town saddened and enraged at the same time. See, we haven't really talked about this yet, but Ajete is a very small, safe community within Madrid that had no recent history of violent crime. By 7 p.m., 200 of the 12,000 residents of Aljete had gathered in front of the Blanco residents to mourn their loss. And during Ava's funeral, there were a total of 2,000 people in attendance, which we're talking about a town of 12,000 people. That's an insane number. Now, after Ava's autopsy, it was confirmed that she had indeed died after sustaining 19 stab injuries to the back, which eventually led to her death around 4 a.m. due to blood loss. 
After further investigation, they found that these wounds were caused by a navaja, which is like a traditional Spanish style folding knife. It's kind of like a almost like a larger, more ornate pocket knife. And the knife that was used to stab Ava was around three to four inches in length and about a quarter inch wide. Now, the autopsy had also reported finding semen in her mouth, vagina, and underwear. But despite the official report stating that the semen was from consensual sex, her parents maintained the belief that she was sexually assaulted on the night of her disappearance. Wait, so they still believed after they had discovered she was stabbed that this was consensual? Yeah, and it's 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 really weird, and it's kind of what I thought too, but this brings us into the second point that when Ava's body was found, it, she was found dressed, and it really showed no signs of violence leading up to the murder, uh, and both the coroner and the police officers actually believed that the sex had been consensual and that the murder could have been a result of you know like an argument that after, happened after the fact. Despite that theory, though, Ava's parents still strongly believe that their daughter had been kidnapped and assaulted at knife point and then unfortunately murdered once everything was done. And last but not least, confirming the theory that she was taken in a vehicle, the medical examiner found a fiber from car upholstery in her mouth. Now, because the police thought this was like some sort of sexcapade and argument gone wrong, they assumed that this would be a short and easy to solve case. The police's main theory was that somebody known to Ava had approached her in a car, offered her a ride, and then took her to that construction site that I had mentioned earlier to have sex. Now, their first two suspects were Ava's recently ex-boyfriend and a new love interest. Both were quickly ruled out uh, after some police interrogation and some DNA tests and kind of led to another dead end. With this said, this actually led Aljete police to take an interest in the other men in Ava's life, especially because they were convinced that it had to have been somebody that she knew for her to get into the car voluntarily. After all, Ava's friends insisted that she would never accept a ride from a stranger. Over time, police began to secretly seek out DNA samples from Ava's family members, including her father. They even went as far as watching her father smoke a cigarette while drinking coffee at a local cafe and then grabbing the cigarette butt to test it for DNA. Other family members and close male friends also had their DNA taken from beer glasses and unrelated blood alcohol content tests uh, and still nothing. It was a, a case remained cold. Like I was saying, despite all of these DNA tests and local investigation, police officers were unable to find any suspects that seemed to match the details of the case. Eight months after Ava's murder, though, another mystery would surface. Ava's mother had found some of Ava's diaries and both family and police went through them, hoping to find any sort of evidence that would lead them to the person who had murdered Ava. Now, these diaries, they weren't very different than what you would expect from a normal teenage girl, especially in 1997. Stories of her friends, drama, and of course, the name of Ava's boyfriend written over and over hundreds of times. One thing that stood out, though, is that on the last page of her diary, Ava had written Ava and 343110. And she wrote this. 200 times with different colored pens. Now, previously, Ava had written Ava in the name of her boyfriend, you know, something like Cameron and Krista, Cameron and Morgan. Now, investigators were confused as to what this 343110 number could mean, many believing it was code for something. Over the years, there have been a ton of online forums and discussion boards trying to decode this message. But what do you guys think it might be? I don't know. I definitely feel like it's a 
code. Like it's someone, it has to do with someone that she shouldn't be speaking with. Like maybe a a friend of hers is interested in this person or maybe they're older than her, whatever it is. The reason it's in a code is because she doesn't want anyone to find out that she's talking to them. So I don't know what it could be though. Cause my first thought was like a screen name, but that was before that time. Well, you actually might be on to something. I will, uh, I'll talk a little bit about what forums and discussion boards have said, but Crystal, what do you think it might be? I'm not sure. I was like, the screen name thing kind of crossed my mind as well, but like what, what Morgan said too, like it's 1997. I mean, you had a little bit here and there of like internet usage, but I don't know that she was delving into internet usage like that. I'm going to probably go with like a classic teenage girl answer, which is probably like someone like Morgan said as well, not supposed to be talking to them. And, you know, that's her like code name that she uses. However, it decodes out to make sense. I'm not really sure about that part, but I'm definitely going to agree with Morgan and the the forbidden love, teenage love storyline. Yeah. So over the years, there have been a ton of online forums and discussion boards trying to decode this message, like I had said before. But some of the most common thoughts are a phone number, which kind of makes sense because in Spain, you didn't have to dial nine numbers if you were going to call somebody within the same province or the same state uh, in 1997. And actually, here in Spain, phone numbers have basically the phone number is three sets of three. So, you know, if we're talking about the fact that you didn't have to dial, you know, the first beginning part of it, maybe. I almost feel like that's a little too straightforward, though. Like, especially if this is just online discussions are still going back and forth about this. Like, wouldn't law enforcement or someone at this point already have run the number and figured that out? Mm, That's so true. Yeah, that's a really good point. The next thing that people kind of go to, and this is a little bit of a weirder one and not something I would have ever guessed, but I guess in this that that year, the year that Ava had gone missing and was murdered, the company Coca-Cola had actually had a raffle and it gave away beepers or like pagers. And so what Ava's father actually believes is that the number could be associated with like a friend of hers who also won, you know, one of those beepers or one of those pagers. So in terms of the beeper theory, I could see like a teenage girl wanting to be a raffle winner. Like I'm not sure in terms of dates, like where it fell. Um, But -hmm. I can see a teenage girl wanting to be a raffle winner and being like writing it over, like almost manifesting it in her own way. But then again, Mm -hmm. like 200 times or however many times she wrote it is definitely like in excess, but it's not far from reality for a teenage girl who who wants a beeper because we've seen teenage girls in that in that scenario. So I'm kind of confused like so did she win a beeper or is she she's trying to win this beeper with this number like what's what's the th- or this is someone else's beeper number? So from my understanding it was something that she had won and this was something that she had had. Uh, at least from my my research and my investigation. Um, so that's why Ava's father actually believes that it might be the beeper number of somebody else. Now, you know, this kind of goes back to what you had mentioned with the phone number is, well, wouldn't law enforcement already run the number, right? But maybe during that time, maybe it was, you know, maybe it wasn't as easy to do that or they didn't think to do that. Like it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, I, it's hard to say. 
The next idea is that it could be a birth date. Now, this one's a little bit of a weird one because it would put the person, it would kind of make the murderer an older person. So people think that it would be you like 1934, 31, and then 10, which, you know, kind of makes sense. I could see it, but I'm not 100% sold on that one. What do you guys think? It does kind of go back to the forbidden love thing. I'm just having a tough time believing because if it was 1934 and we're talking about late 90s, that person would be in their 60s, like you were saying. So it's yeah. it does kind of go back to the forbidden love, but I'm having a tough time believing that. Yeah. I mean, it could be like a teacher, you know, she's like loves her, you know, but again, mm-hmm. like, I don't think that the birth date would be the first thing that they would go to. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm, if the person was that old, like, how would she know their birthday? Like, just speaking about a teenage girl, like, true. if it was an older guy, how does she know his exact birth? Like, if it was a teacher or something, I don't know. And for something like, you know, an adult, you know, I think that when it comes to teens and it's teen on teen and they don't want other people to know, they definitely go with codes. But I think when it comes to an adult, mm-hmm. almost like a crush, you're going to be more like literally upfront with it because you, you know, you're manifesting it, you're daydreaming, you're not thinking about other people yeah. finding out or it being evidence in a crime, you're going to straight up write that person's name. So it definitely right there is like, hmm, I don't know about the birth date theory. Yeah, I'm not sold on it either. The next idea is kind of like what you guys mentioned in the very beginning, a boy's name written in code or a boy's name written, not really in code, but like changing the letters for numbers. So like, for example, like, you know, if you have the the name Mike, it's M-I-K-E. So you might write it like M1K3 and it looks like Mike. I'm more inclined to believe that it's written in like her own made up code. Because if you look at this number and you think, okay, well, what would somebody maybe, you know, what would somebody's name be that fits the 343110? It just doesn't make sense. I mean, it would be like, what, AIO? I mean, it's just not a name, you know? So I, I, just, I don't know if I fully believe that either. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm having a tough time believing that one too. I'm looking actually at the note because I'm like getting into my head about it now, of course. And I'm thinking about like code names and then like what you said, Cameron, that kind of like M1, K3, like screen name trend we Mm -hmm. all did. And I'm not like, it kind of looks like it could be, to be honest, like a script Z, a Y, a Z, L, L, O. I mean, not to like go completely out of like the realm of like Mm -hmm. the seven theories we kind of laid out with Google, but like... That could be like Ava E, someone like either Z Y Z L L O or B Y B L L O, which could be like in the less name territory. So again, not to go completely out of the box, but just like staring at this picture, I'm like, maybe it's not numbers, maybe it's script. She has That's like super true. bubbly handwriting, so it's it's kind of hard. They look like yeah. B's or Z's. Yeah, no, that's totally true. And I didn't actually even think about that until I'm kind of looking at it again. And I think it's probably just because so many people just assumed, well, that's a three, four, three, you know, they just assumed that it was numbers and they didn't really think about it. But I could totally see it maybe being a name that was, you know, written weird or maybe partially in code, you know, maybe kind of even a combination of the two that we've talked about. Definitely. Or like a nickname of that person or half last name, you know, you shorten names, whatever. And then finally, the last theory is that it could be like an IRC chat screen name or a number. Now, you know, obviously in the US, I think it's fair to say that like in the late 
90s, early 2000s, like AIM was super popular, MSN Messenger, Yahoo Messenger. Those were very, very popular. But actually in Europe, I mean, obviously we have to remember that AIM wasn't a thing in Europe, right? Because it's America online (laughs) and, you know, just doesn't really fit. But in Europe, a lot of people used ICQ before MSN Messenger was a thing. And ICQ, I don't know if you guys have ever used it before, but ICQ doesn't actually give you a screen name. It's actually a number. So people think that maybe this was, you know, an ICQ number of somebody, maybe a boy that she was talking to. But during my research, I couldn't find any, you know, any evidence that made me believe that she had like a easy internet access or easy computer access at home. I just couldn't find anything about it. So I don't know how valid that idea is, especially for it still being 1997. It's still pretty early. Yeah, again, not to like overthink it at all. But like if you live in like even just anywhere outside of like the city city, like even if you live in the suburb of Madrid, like you said, you probably don't have internet access as a teenager at home. That's something you might have at school or your parents yeah. have at work. I don't think your parents are investing in a computer or internet so their kid can sit at home chatting online in 97. So yeah, right. I'm not sure about the screen name. Actually, I kind of believe this a little bit just because I'm thinking back Like, yes, this was a very early time for instant messaging and the internet. But I mean, she does live right outside of a big city, right? So libraries around there would have computers. I mean, it's not too far-fetched. And like, I remember when I was younger, like my friends would find people on chat rooms and things like that. Like that was a thing that happened. That doesn't seem too far out of the realm of possibility to me at least. Yeah, totally. And I actually, I mean, now that you mentioned it, I try to think back and I try to think about when my parents first got internet access. I don't know if it was as early as 1997, but I do think it was still in the 90s or at least like barely into the 2000s. And like, I'm originally from a very small town. And so it was kind of the same thing. So, you know, you do have a really good point about her being right outside the capital city. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I That one kind of convinces me a little bit too, but I'm not 100% sure. Despite the theories over the years, nobody has been able to decode this number. And ultimately, it led to another dead end in this case. After months and years with little to no movement in the case, Ava's father decided to petition for a mass DNA test of all male residents of Algete, and he did this in 1999. Now, believe it or not, and this was actually to my shock as well, this petition was actually backed by the Algete mayor at the time and initially called for all male residents over the age of 16 to provide hair or saliva samples. Now, This call, it was not mandatory. And I think that's very important to note. But assuming that all males over the age of 16 would submit their hair or saliva that would result in like approximately 5,000 DNA samples, that's insane. Despite receiving over 2,000 samples from willing participants, Spanish judicial organizations criticized this movement as they considered it to be simple-minded, and they were concerned that it would create a potential stigma for residents who refused to provide a DNA sample. 
What do you guys think? Because I think this was a smart idea from Ava's father. I actually agree with the Spanish judicial organizations because I just can't imagine that anyone who is actually guilty of her murder would realistically submit their sample. I mean, after all, we know that testing, even just one DNA sample, takes a lot of money and resources. So I just can't imagine how they would realistically test so many different DNA samples. Uh, You know what? This is so hard because I feel for their family. You know, like if I were in their shoes, I'd probably want the entire country tested. At the same time, I agree, you know, anyone guilty would definitely not agree to give their DNA. But my first thought is like, remember that case where a family member of someone who committed a crime gave their DNA to 23andMe and like they were somehow linked back to the crime? Like, a super old cold case was solved because of 23andMe. And like, I know this is totally different in a totally different time. But, you know, even at that time, I'm not sure if finding the criminal's family member would be totally out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, you know, that's, I mean, that's an excellent point. Like if it happens today, I mean, it could easily happen then, especially because people didn't move as much as they do today. Um, People are much more mobile today, Uh, maybe not in 2020 and 2021, but in general, people are much more mobile than they used to be. So yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm also wondering like what type of crime rate they had in the area that they would assume the best of people to provide their DNA. You know, you're just Mm. assuming the best that people will just willingly give you their DNA and incriminate Mm. themselves. However, though, Morgan was doubting that someone would provide their DNA as a guilty person. But we've seen cases, too, where the killer hides in plain sight. You know, they go to the Mm -hmm. vigils, they, you know, ask the police, is there anything I can do? You know, they're a friend of the family and they're bringing food and they're providing support. Mind you, they're the, you know, they're the guilty party from day one. So, you know, you might catch someone slipping, trying to be slick, especially Mm -hmm. in 97, where DNA maybe wasn't like truly known like we know it now. We see it on TV, we hear it in the news, we hear it on the radio. It's second nature to us, but... Over 20 years ago, it probably wasn't. And then I also want to think about not necessarily what their crime rate may have been, but again, they may be setting a precedent like we have a low crime rate. And Mm -hmm. if you do this in our province or our town, you're not getting away with it. Like we're requesting DNA from wherever we can get it and you will be caught. So kind of making an example of this case, unfortunately, sometimes that's harder on the family but again just setting precedent Mm -hmm. yeah no totally i think i mean i think both of those are possibilities right and i mean it's just like you said so many people hide in plain sight um so yeah you know totally it's definitely an option but at the end when all was said and done the examining magistrate of ava's case decided that testing should only be done on samples of those who could be potential suspects and this basically meant that they only wanted to test the samples from the closest people in ava's life and then the samples from any aljete resident that had a previous criminal record specifically related to knife or sexual violence now with All these people being tested, they ended up testing 45 DNA samples, which, I mean, is a lot less than the 2,000, 5,000 number that we had been throwing around before. But it is still an incredible number of DNA samples to be tested, especially in 1997. With all of that said, though, the case remained cold. 
By 2007, over 30 police officers had worked on Ava's case, but despite years of investigation, police were still as confused as they were in 1997, with the one exception of a piece of evidence that had come to light. Now, during DNA testing, investigators had concluded that the DNA that was found on the crime scene from Ava's attacker was not of European descent, which obviously helped narrow down potential suspects, but there still wasn't very much progress. As a matter of fact, in 2013, investigators had actually continued to test various DNA samples from men who lived in the surrounding area of Aljete, but nothing until 2013 when another piece of evidence would come to light. On April 26, 2013, La Sexta, which is a very popular TV station in Spain, aired an episode about Ava's case on their show, Equipo de Investigación, which is like a true crime, basically what we're doing. Uh, it's just a TV show about true crime in old cases, and they really hope to bring some renewed media attention and focus to Ava's murder, which we've seen done in so many cases before. Yeah, definitely. And I think that was true crime, especially as of recently, I'm seeing a lot of controversy surrounding it people assuming like you know the wounds of victims and their families is the entertainment of others but i think it's actually so much more because in a case that's unsolved or just cold for so many years it's almost very important to get like fresh minds fresh eyes on the case updated technology especially with the dna history of this case um so i think it was a really good choice of the producers to pick this case however many years later to like i said just bring fresh renewed eyes onto the case so it did that it actually worked it did exactly what you had mentioned and after seeing the episode about ava's case a woman had actually called authorities to report that she had seen a suspicious man near the construction site where ava was murdered around 8 a.m now this man he was seen walking in the rain without an umbrella and looked like he had barely slept that night the woman who had called authorities also remarked that it, it appeared that the mystery man was looking for something before getting into a white car, a Renault 18. Now, the police had to actually take in this potential witness pretty seriously as they had received other reports about this same vehicle. And you guys remember that fiber that was found in Ava's mouth at the crime scene? Well, that fiber was a match to the fibers that were normally used in the upholstery of that make and model car in 1997. Now, because police were so confident in this new witness, they brought her in, and on October 28th, 2013, police released a composite sketch of what the potential suspect might look like. He was said to be between 35 and 40 years old, around 5 feet, 10 inches tall, 100 to 165 to 175 pounds, with short, spiky brown hair, a square and hardened face, dark, sunken eyes, and wearing a white shirt and v-neck sweater. A confidential phone number and email address were provided for possible tips, and by January 1st, 2014, over 100 emails had been received. Now, unfortunately, all of these tips that were received via email ended up not leading to anything that investigators didn't already know. To the public, it seemed like the case remained cold. What people didn't know, however, is that at the same time during the end of 2013, investigators were looking into the DNA sample that was found at the crime scene. 
not only had they determined that it wasn't of European descent, like I had actually mentioned earlier, but they had narrowed it down enough and they knew that the DNA belonged to a man of North African descent. Now that police knew more specifically who they were looking for, they petitioned for voluntary DNA samples from any Aljete resident of North African descent that lived in the small town during Ava's murder. Surprisingly, the response was overwhelmingly positive by the residents, and this actually created doubt among the investigators because, again, why would anybody who was guilty willingly submit their DNA for testing? I want to kind of go back to what Morgan said about the 23andMe, and I'm just thinking that a lot of people probably willingly submit samples because they don't realize that there's parts of DNA that can link you to your relatives. So while you're not a 100% match, uh, you might provide the 80% match that they need to hone in on you and then ask about family members. So I think that might be probably on the top list of reasons why people actually might willingly submit their DNA because they're like, oh, I'm innocent and they don't realize what it could lead to. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it's it's you never really know people, right? Even your own family. Sometimes you don't really know who they are and what they're capable of. And it's funny that you mentioned that. And it's even funnier that Morgan brought it up earlier because after they did this DNA test, they finally hit their big break in the case. The DNA of Fuad Chell, a former resident of Ava's neighborhood, had a 97% DNA match to the murderer. I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) You're, you weren't wrong. You weren't far off. Now, obviously, 97%, that doesn't mean that he did it. But what this concluded was that his level of a DNA match would only be possible if his brother was Ava's murderer. Fuad had two brothers, one living in Murcia, Spain, and the other living in France. Now, the brother who lived in Murcia never actually lived in Algete. But because he was already in the country, they obviously tested his DNA. And as you can imagine, it was not a match. This meant that the DNA had to be a match to the third brother living in France. So finally, after 18 years, Ahmed Chell was arrested outside of his workplace in France. Ahmed Chell was 52 and was born in Tassa, Morocco, and was 52 when he was arrested, meaning that he would have been 34 years old at the time of the murder. You see, he had actually married a Spanish woman from Madrid in the 90s, and that's why he was living there. Now, the reason he was never listed as a resident of Aljete in 1997 was because they lived in a caravan parked in a plant nursery where Chell worked as a delivery man. And you can imagine the caravan was parked only two miles from where he murdered Ava. So I don't know if it's related, but again, I'm going back to the note because I'm fixated on the note. Um, And I don't know if anyone's ever mentioned this or if they've ever questioned, is this someone that she knew or is this a complete stranger? But I just want to point out that if we go back to the number theory on the note from a diary, it starts off with what they think might be three, four. And I just want to point out that he was 34 years old at the time of the murder again. Not sure if that's something they've ever Mm. looked at if they know each other, but definitely an interesting coincidence. That is very interesting. And I actually didn't even realize that. Maybe as the story goes on, and I'm going to share a little bit more, he was really hard to get information out of, but we'll kind of learn a little bit more as we go through the rest of the story. 
Now, in 1999, Ahmed would move him and his family to France. And that's, I mean, it's kind of suspicious. I'm actually kind of surprised he didn't leave earlier, to be honest, considering that this took place in 1997. But as we know, uh, you know, the months after the murder, that's when police were really putting a lot of emphasis. So part of me wonders if all of that you know, focus police and investigative, you know, attention on the case is what ultimately led him to want to leave, right? I mean, it makes the most sense. Now, when Ahmed was questioned by police as to why his DNA was on the crime scene, he had actually told him that he had walked there by two friends who then proceeded to force him to masturbate on top of Ava's body. Now, I think it's fair to say police knew that this was a lie. And actually, when asked, Ahmed had no answer for how his DNA was found inside of her. Very quickly, being caught in his conscious feeling with guilt, or at least that's what I like to think, but maybe it was just him not wanting to spend his life locked up, it caught up to him. And on October 5th, he was found in his cell after unsuccessfully trying to slit his throat in a suicide attempt. The his answers and this whole charade and, and obviously the suicide attempt, it, it didn't work on the judge because Ahmed had actually wanted to be released into the general public. He wanted to be released uh, pending trial. And the judge was like, no way you are going to stay in prison until you are on trial. And so only two days later, he was deported back to Spain, where he was then sent back to Spanish prison. Now, obviously, with everything that had happened, Chell was on suicide watch pending the trial. But he was removed from Suicide Watch after being evaluated by um, by therapists and psychologists. And he was removed off of Suicide Watch on January 6, 2016. Unfortunately for Ava's family, they would never see justice as Ahmed was found hanged in his prison cell by his own shoelaces on January 29th. But at least her killer would be known. I know these kind of cases, at least for me personally... They drive me nuts because we were so close to having justice for Ava. And it was one of those situations where once, you know, we were so close to having that justice, they decided to take the easy way out. And this is something that I actually didn't touch on during the story. But in Spain, and I'm not 100% sure if it's still the case, but at least during the story, Spain has a statute of limitations on murder of 20 years. And as we know, Ava was murdered in 1997. So when all of this happened, it was only two years before the statute of limitations ran out. So they were so close to finally getting justice for her. But yeah, like I said, it's one of those situations where I think he just, you know, he didn't want to face up to what he had done. What do you guys think? For me, part of it is so hard because of the justice thing. They were so close. And then also it just leaves more questions for me, honestly, like because he wasn't willing mm-hmm. to talk. We don't really have that closure. And I'm sure, you know, Ava's family also doesn't have this closure of where this man came from. Did she know him? What the code was like? There's so many unanswered questions that he kind of robbed her family of aside from the justice Mm -hmm. piece of it which is like i don't know which is worse for me um but it's hard you know hearing all of these clues the questions that come up and you know the ending for me is so abrupt and it's it leaves a lot of things unsolved 
Okay, I want to say shame on the jail system for taking this individual off suicide watch. I didn't quite catch like the window that he was on the watch from, but I want to include that being on the watch besides getting evaluated by medical professionals is simply a guard passing by your cell like at least every 15 minutes. And sometimes it's actually two on one. So it will be one inmate in the cell and two people outside. So that could have prevented this like in so many ways, like could have prevented his suicide, obviously. And I, you know, the jail completely, their irresponsibility impeded the family from like ever seeing justice. Not to like pump conspiracies into this poor girl's case, but I just, again, I knowing how, you know, we've seen other cases, um, other perpetrators timeline. Sometimes they say that this person hanged themselves and they actually didn't, you know, they may have Mm -hmm. been killed by another inmate. I mean, this guy definitely would be at risk of that killing a young girl. That's an absolute no, no, you know, a guard that's completely upset by the case you know, disgusted, kind of like a vigilante taking it into his own hands, you know, or just, you know, a fight like they they will do anything to save face, you know, the justice system. Yeah. And I just do. I'm just saying. No. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's a good point because it is so close, you know, and you never really know. I, I would be hesitant to believe that I'd be hesitant to believe that it was the justice system that didn't, you know, that caused this in some way. Mostly because I think this would be good press. You know, I I, I hate saying that it would be good press, um, you know, when somebody's life was lost. But when we're talking about solving such an age, it's such a, a such a cold case. And with such little time left before the statute of limitations runs out, I don't think that it would be something with the justice system. But I am more inclined to believe that maybe it was another inmate. And it is, you know, something to be noted. And obviously, I don't have a ton of experience on prisons in Spain. I've never been to one. I don't plan on going to one. But in general, prisons outside of the US and in Europe in general tend to be a little bit more... Um, a little bit more liberal, I guess you could say. They're a little bit more free. Now, I don't know exactly what kind of you know security he was in. I don't know. Like I said, I, I don't know 100% what Spanish prisons are like. So I almost wonder if maybe it was just he was given too much freedom or even like you said, there just wasn't somebody watching there. Somebody wasn't paying enough attention to him. So yeah, it's it, it definitely is frustrating at the end. But at least at the very least, Ava's family knows who did it. And I think that is better than never knowing at all. I would be curious to know like what listeners think too, like in terms of what we were just saying, kind of not necessarily conspiracies, but theories that we do have about surrounding Ahmed in the jail. Like, do you think it was, you know, intentional straight up suicide or do you think that it's a cover up for something more? Um, I would definitely be curious to see what other people have to say, especially people coming from Spain or Europe that may, ha- I mean, unfortunately yeah. know more about the um, the jail system there, kind of like what type of watch he would be under and kind of use that knowledge. to like, let us know a theory. Like, I'd definitely be curious because I also don't know anything about Spanish prisons. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I've never been and I don't plan on it anytime soon. So. <laughs> But yeah, no, that's a great point. You know, let us know what you think. Uh, As always, we're on social media and you can always shoot us an email as well or a voice message on Anchor um, sharing your opinions. And, you know, we're happy to share those in the next uh, podcast. But thank you everyone for listening and accompanying us for today's story. As always, you guys can keep up with all things Thrilogy on social media at 
at ThrillGPod and make story requests on ThrillGPodcast.com. Each week, we will be releasing two hints so you can try to guess the following week's podcast subject. So your first hint is what happens on the ice stays on the ice. Be sure to check out our Instagram for another hint later this week and let us know if you think you've guessed it. <laughs>